Our passage this morning. And please feel free to stay at your table. Unless anyone just really wants to come sit in this front row of four seats. <laughs> no, nobody? Okay. The scripture is in your handout, but I'm actually going to start just a little bit ahead at the end of chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decropolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, for I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word of the Lord. 
So part of our practice of worship together at Kaleo has in the past and currently been using our bodies to serve our community. And not just the people who are in this room, but the people that we are in community with when we walk out of our front door or into our workplace or when we meet up with an old friend. We haven't done this in a while, but we have also had a practice in doing this of doing a particular impact of picking up trash in the neighborhood. And uh, it has been formative enough for my daughter's story, who's five, that when we're driving through our part of town and she sees an especially dirty uh, embankment, she'll say, we need to pick up trash there this Sunday. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're right, we do. So if I think there's some spaces that Story has in mind, so if any of you want to get with her after church, she'll be heading up an impact. Um... Trash, we've said, is something that doesn't belong maybe on the side of the road because if Jesus announced this kingdom that has come near, that is starting now, do we think that heaven contains trash? No. So we pick it up in an act of worship of bringing the kingdom here now, cleaning and preparing the way. But I've started to wonder something as of late, as I've been trying to uh, become more and more degrees of eco-friendly. I started to wonder if there's any such thing as trash at all. Like I'm trying to think of something that is actually garbage. And maybe you guys came up with something in your group. But I can hardly think of anything that can't be composted or recycled or reused or fed to pigs or created into art, as my daughter will also teach you how to do if you need some help with that. So is there anything that's inherently waste or garbage? Now, we throw out all kinds of things, right? We throw out things that don't fit our lives anymore, um, and uh, you may have heard of Marie Kondo, I don't even know how to say her name, Kondo, Kondo, who wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. She now has a Netflix original series called Tidying Up, to be short, and she advocates for a kind of minimalism that insists on removing the things from your life that don't bring you joy. But my question to Marie Kondo is, <laughs> what about the things in your life that don't bring you joy that you can't get rid of? The shackles on your ankles that have no magical key the roadblocks that you can't go over or around, the shooting pain that's as close as a friend and as hated as an enemy. These are the things to me that feel like the real waste. In our passage today, Jesus has just exited the wilderness. He's just called his 
first disciples. He has been in this time of fasting and prayerful and this devil-inhabited wilderness, which is just about the perfect time to begin a ministry. He calls his disciples and he begins this ministry by healing people of their diseases. Now, what Jesus was doing was actually literally super amazing for the people at the time who didn't have the medical care that has become such a part of our everyday lives, who didn't have answers or pills or prognoses or experimental treatments or Google uh, to look up what they had and to see what was wrong with them and to see what their options were. And so you can imagine how word spread pretty quickly it was like he was a psychiatrist who did the actual miracle of figuring out the right medication on the first try. But also he was a specialist in every other disease as well. And he could cure them all, Matthew's Gospel said. So this great crowd flocked around Jesus. And Matthew tells us that he goes up on a high mountain. And then he starts with the Beatitudes. I have the unfortunate task this year. I've drawn all the cards where I'm the one who's gotten to preach on all of the most common verses in the Bible. So I've already preached on John 16, this 316 this year. I've already preached on Jeremiah 29, and now we're in the Beatitudes. So um, it's a challenge for me. I'm like, give me something that no one's ever heard of before. But no. Um... So Jesus goes on this high mountain and he starts with the Beatitudes and then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And But what is fascinating and what I found is fascinating about this is that this is actually Matthew's way of compiling all of these teachings of Jesus into uh, kind of this body of teaching. And Matthew is trying to tell us something in the way that he is outlining this. And this is what he's trying to tell us, that Jesus is Moses. Okay, follow me. So far, this is what happens. Both Jesus and Moses, Jesus is portrayed in Matthew's Gospel and Moses, are threatened at birth by a fearful but powerful king. They are both rejected by their own people. They both come out of Egypt. They both pass through the water. Moses, the Red Sea, and Jesus, the waters of baptism. They are both tested in the wilderness. They both do great deeds of power in liberating God's people. And the, they both ascend a mountain to give these authoritative words of God. The scene that Matthew is setting up echoes the scene that the people of God would recognize as the formational community of the people of God. Matthew wants us to know that the enslaved and exiled people of God in Egypt are the deceased, the diseased and destitute people of God in Galilee. And the people of God are here because God has heard the cries 
has come down to rescue them. And the prophet now sits on a mountain and is about to give them the words of God, this this, uh, proverbial Ten Commandments, this way to live together in the midst of a holy God in the midst of oppressors and wilderness. And Jesus sits down and he says, Blessed are you, because you have planned ahead and saved for emergencies. Blessed are you, because you have found your dream job. Blessed are you, because you can afford insurance. Blessed are you, because your enemies are getting what's coming to them. Blessed are you, because you are honored. Blessed are you, because you are happy. Blessed are you because you are healthy. Oh, wait, no, that's not right. That's that's what we say is blessed. That's who we say is blessed. When we use the words blessing, which is kind of why I hate the word blessing, it's not a bad word, it's just used badly. When we say the word blessing, we're often not talking about a blessing. We're talking about a privilege. Jesus calls blessed looks more like those running up against a wall than those who have the power to shut down the government because they want to build one. Jesus the prophet, the eternal son of God, sits down to talk and to teach the people that some would rather throw out. And truly, some of them have already been thrown out, surely, of their homes and their communities and their communities of faith. And he starts like this. Blessed are you when you are out of money, lack community, or have nothing left to give. When you are at the end of your rope, blessed are those who experience the grief of losing something or someone. Blessed are those who grieve the present and palpable lack of the kingdom of God in this climate and discourse. Blessed are those who are content with just what they are, humble, patient, teachable, long-suffering, Blessed are those who are aware of their identity as the people of God in the world and those who have renounced the violent methods of this worldly power. Blessed are those who forsake the belief that they are righteous already. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the fulfillment of God's kingdom and act on God's will now. Blessed are those who are starving and dying for clean water. Blessed are those who release their vengeance to God. Blessed are those whose hearts aren't blinded by sinful practices or desires. Blessed are those whose weapons of choice are de-escalation, mediation, empathy, and forgiveness of self and others. Blessed are those who choose love, hope, peace, faith, and still lose relationships in jobs, 
and family and money in spite of it. Blessed are you when you are sabotaged, betrayed, attacked, and abandoned for following God. Or when you end up absorbing people's hatred of God because your light is God's light. Blessing. What is a blessing, really? The word beatitude means blessing. But the Greek word for beatitude is sotira, and I didn't take Greek, so Kevin, is that how you say it? Okay. Uh, Sotira means salvation. Uh, In Hebrew, if you translate it, it's the word shalom, wholeness, peace, blessing, beatitude. In German, how many of you know any word in German? Okay, a few of you. Do you know the word heil? Heil... We'll not finish that. Um, it mean, It's translated as heil into German, which means whole or save. So you can translate that if you want. Whole or save. And this is the best one. Beatitude is translated into uh, Old English as the word okay. A little less powerful, but it's kind of like interesting. It kind of gives new light to like, hey, how are you doing today? I'm okay. Like, I'm blessed. Anyway. Um, saved are you. Blessed are you. Whole are you. At peace are you. You are okay. Hardship is not usually the time that we feel the most blessed. Yet the kingdom of heaven that Jesus initiates challenges all the rules about what it means to be blessed. I was blessed enough to have some dental work this week. And a few weeks ago, I went for my six-month appointment, cleaning, annual x-ray, and they're like, you got some, you got a cavity under that really deep cavity. We just need to give you a crown because otherwise it's going to be a root canal in a couple of years. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to do it, but I'll schedule my appointment. I scheduled an appointment for last Wednesday. Went down. My dentist, by the way, is an hour away. Went down an hour drive. Got there. Spent 30 minutes receiving shots in my mouth, drilling my tooth down to a nub. And then the dentist looks up and says, well, unfortunately, it's already reached the nerve, so you're going to have to come back next week and have a root canal, and you're going to have to take an antibiotic for the next seven days, Uh, which uh, was bad enough. But then I came back, and then my temporary crown, the thing they put on that ground-down tooth that now the nerve is exposed to, they put a temporary crown so that your nerve just isn't exposed in your mouth. Um, That broke on night two at two o'clock in the morning. So I currently have an exposed root in my mouth, partially exposed. So I can't, I got to eat everything room temperature or I feel like this really sharp pain go right up into my jaw. If you've never felt what a root canal feels like, get ready. It's it's coming. Um, So I'm feeling real blessed this morning. Uh, 
So what are you grieving right now? What pain did you come this morning bearing? See, the, the audience of this message of Jesus wasn't, weren't these like really lucky people who <clears throat> were kind of like lucky enough to be born at the time of Jesus and then lucky enough to be in the right area and hear about Jesus and go up on this mountain and then they got to hear this amazing message of Jesus that now we're still talking about. The way that Matthew writes this, his book, this isn't a message for the elite at the top of the mountain, but Matthew has compiled these teachings of Jesus and put them in a narrative so that Matthew's audience, who is an actual church, can put themselves in the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. It is less a real crowd and more a literary device to hold the reader in the scene so that we, the reader, can place ourselves in that great crowd who gathers and comes to Jesus. Jesus' audience, his disciples, the crowd that sat and listened to his teaching is us. It is the church. That's the way the book was written. It is us who shows up, the collective us of the church who has sat at the foot of this prophet's mountain. Because it is the church that contains the people who are meek and persecuted, in pain, poor and hungry and thirsty, those who are pure in heart, those who are merciful, those who mourn, and those who are peacemakers. These aren't entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. They are descriptors of it, of all who are here. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't stop with the Beatitudes. It goes on to give the people instruction for what it means to be a part of this new kingdom with all kinds of things. But the Beatitudes are the foundation of that sermon. It is the blessing that tints the rest of those rose-colored golden rules. Because it tells us that we're okay that this is us, this is where we're at. Not every one of us is every one of these things, but this is us as a collective, and that is okay. Being not okay is okay. And the cool thing is, is that even though that Jesus starts with the Beatitudes, he didn't invent Beatitudes. So we kind of have some context for how Beatitudes are used. And Beatitudes are used in two ways. One, they're used by wisdom writers. And wisdom writers uh, use them to, uh, in the context of a present reward or happiness for right action. So it's something that's currently happening as a result of right action. Like a proverb almost. The second way they're used is by the prophets. And the prophets use them as a present or future outcome for those who are currently in dire circumstances. And Jesus' Beatitudes are the latter. They're the prophetic ones. A prophetic blessing on dire circumstances 
and this is the really cool part. The really cool part is that it's not a given that these are things are blessed. Right? We don't go around, that's not the cultural norm, neither in Jesus' day or now, that these hardships are the things that are the blessing. But rather, it's Jesus' words as the authoritative voice of God that calls them into existence. It is the speaking of the word that makes it true. It speaks it. It's, he speaks this blessing into existence. It is not a feeling that you are feeling, but a reality to come and that does come in the speaking of it. And since Jesus has already spoken this blessing, the blessing over hardships and has testified to what this kingdom of God is like, we also can speak these blessings as truth. A spoken blessing saves, holds, okays, and gives peace in the midst of need. Not necessarily because you feel different. This upside-down kingdom is that Jesus comes to declare is different than the blessing we use to sanctify privilege in our culture. The hardship for Jesus is the haven of heaven. And ultimately, none of this is wasted. In closing today, I want to ask um, everyone to go back to their discussion groups. I realize this is a little unusual. But several of you have shared griefs and pains and burdens in your group. And I just want to ask that for every person who shared, or if you want to share now, that someone in your group would take a minute and just pray a prayer of blessing. Speak the words of blessing over that pain, over that burden, over that hardship. We'll have about seven minutes, so... Um, go ahead and gather back into your groups now. I'm going to pray a closing prayer for us before the kids return and we receive communion. <laughs> this prayer I did not write but it is one of my favorites. It's from Father Thomas Keating, and it's called The Welcoming Prayer. Let me pray this and rest today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it is for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, 
person or myself. I, o- I opened the love and presence of God and God's action within. Mm. 